makes a good leader, uh, and in particular, who should be the leader of God's people. That's the question back then, 3,000 years ago, when these events were all happening. Uh, and I myself, I sort of think, uh, one of the things people look for in a leader is someone who makes them feel safe. That's what we want in someone who's our leader, someone who gives us security. And you see that all the time. Every time there is an Australian uh, election for a prime minister, one of the immediate things that happen is both sides of politics argue we're the ones who can keep the country safe. Especially the last few elections, it's all about we can keep our borders safe and all this sort of stuff. Uh, vote for us. We're the ones who can keep you secure. Uh, and more often, though, in Australia... Because the reality is we're sort of at the end of the world and we don't actually border anyone else and so they realise after a while there's only so much you can beat that up, uh, that it's more economic security that our leaders tell us they can give us. So they say, we're the ones who can keep interest rates down. We're the ones who can keep your wealth growing. We're the ones who can make sure you can own a house. We're the ones who can keep you economically safe and secure. And sadly, I think... Uh, most Australians care more about that than anything else, more about our hip pocket and whether we're financially secure, and so that's what decides our elections in this country nine times out of ten. Well, the Israelites in the time of 1 Samuel that we just read about in chapter 8 had very, very similar concerns. Uh, they were the things they were worried about, but their border security was a real live issue. Uh, they had the Philistines just over the mountain. You know, there were the Philistines who were one of the most warlike people who have ever lived and every 20 or 30 years or so the Philistines would get sort of a bit itchy and they'd just come piling on into Israel and sort of give Israel a bit of a touching up. Uh, and the Amorites down in the south, they'd do the same thing. They'd come in once in a while and they'd built up the Israelites. And, and so if you've been reading along in, in 1 Samuel, what you'll have seen is that that's what they wanted. They wanted safety, they wanted security. But what you would have also seen is that how they could get that safety and how they could get that security was actually really, really simple. When was Israel safe? When were they secure against their enemies? It was when they trusted God. That's when they were safe. It's when they remembered that they were Yahweh's people that Yahweh, the Lord, had brought them out of slavery. He'd given them this land. And if they just trusted in him, he would keep them safe. Uh, and what would happen is he would raise up a leader for them, a judge each time who would defeat their enemies and keep them safe. But what happened when they turned away from God, when, when their leadership got corrupt, when they turned to worship other gods, when they stopped living God's way and started living in worship of other gods, what happened? Every time the Philistines would come in and show them who was boss, there was no security. And what we actually find out as we read these early chapters of 1 Samuel is that wasn't a mistake. That actually the Philistines and the Amorites were the judgment of God on Israel. That whenever they didn't trust God and whenever they turned to other gods, God would actually raise up the Philistines and he would work for the Philistines so that they would teach the Israelites a lesson or two. And what would happen was it would work because each time they would fall to their knees, remember God and cry out yet again and God would provide them over and over again with exactly the sort of leader that they needed. But here was the thing. The type of leader they thought they needed was very, very different 
to the type of leader God thought they needed. See, they didn't need a great warrior leader. That's not what they needed. They didn't need some great warrior who was the best swordsman, who would charge out into battle, sort of like Mel Gibson in Braveheart sort of thing, and and sort of show the Philistines who was boss. That's not what they needed. They needed someone who would just keep them on the right track with God. That's the type of leader they needed. They needed a leader who would keep just reminding them over and over again, remember, it is God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. It's God who's given you this land. And what you need to do is keep trusting him and keep remembering his promises to you and he will keep you safe. He'll keep you secure. They needed a leader who would keep be strong enough to keep saying, turn away from those other gods. Smash those idols. Give up your greed. Give up your immorality and come back and worship the one true God who can actually keep you safe. They needed a leader who would pray for them. That's what they needed. And you see, the leader they needed was a leader who was strong enough to say, I'm not your real leader. Your real leader is God. And what you see in chapter 7, so open up your Bibles and look there at chapter 7, which is the chapter before we're looking at tonight. God provided them with that leader. So we've seen the story right back from the beginning. Remember when Samuel was a little boy, a miracle baby given to his mother Hannah, and she gave him to to the temple, to the tabernacle, to serve God there. And then God called him, even as a young boy, to be his prophet. And that's what Samuel's done. And what you see in chapter 7 is Samuel as an adult. And what happened was Samuel stood up and he did all those things I said. He led them by telling them God's promises. He prayed for them, all those things. And God gave them the security they craved. Chapter 7 covers a period of about 20 years where they were the most peaceful and the most secure they'd ever been. They defeated the Philistines on this one particular occasion, even though they were totally outmatched, even though their army was hopeless. And how did they do it? Not because Samuel was some great military ruler. It was because God did it. There's a great verse. If you've got chapter 7 open or otherwise uh, look on your outline, I think I've printed it there. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 10. Uh, The Philistines are about to crush them. And what does their leader do? Samuel, look at the start of verse 10. It says, Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to fight against Israel. See, the Philistines are about to come and crush them. And Samuel's not sort of gathering all the troops together and sharpening the swords. He's praying to God. He's asking for God's help. And what did God do? Look there. I love this verse. It says, the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. I don't quite know what that means, whether it was just this massive noise and the Philistines got all excited and ran off in the opposite direction. I don't know. Or is it sort of metaphorical? God thundered and actually God came down in judgment on them? I'm not quite certain. But what we do know is God won the victory. Israel didn't need a general. When you've got God on your side, you don't need some general to have smart military tactics. God came and did it all. So what they have here up until chapter 8 is a period of this great peace and this great security for 20 years. And Samuel is their leader. He's a godly man. He points them back to God all the time, to the God of the universe. But then something happens to threaten all that. Uh, And it wasn't anything sort of outlandish. It wasn't some new nation who were even more warlike than the Philistines. That wasn't what it was. Uh, It's something that happens to everyone. It's there in chapter 8, verse 1. First verse of our reading, look with me. It says, when Samuel grew old. That's what happened. 
Samuel, the great wise leader, grew old. See, being the leader of a nation was hard work. Samuel had to travel all around the country. They didn't have a capital like we have. They didn't all meet together in Canberra and sort it out. He had to travel around being the judge, solving disputes, dealing with all the problems. That's what Samuel did, and he'd gotten too old. He was too old for it. And Samuel could see the problem. So he thought, well, I can do something about this. And he did that by getting his sons to help him. So he set up his two sons in a place called Beersheba and said, you guys judge this part of the country and I'll judge this part of the country. They sort of became his assistant judges. How do you think that worked out, given the history of Israel? It was a huge mistake, wasn't it? It was a terrible mistake and he should have known it wouldn't work, shouldn't he? Because what's happened just a couple of chapters early, earlier with Eli's sons? How did that work out when Eli got his sons to take over from him? What did they get up to? They turned the tabernacle, the, the, the tent of the Lord, into a brothel. That's what they did. That's how their, so his sons went. And Samuel's sons, they weren't much better. What did they do? They used it to make some money. They got people to come and they took bribes and they were corrupt and they were everything their dad wasn't. See, it was a mistake for two main reasons. Firstly, it was a mistake because they were hopeless. The sons were hopeless and corrupt. Uh, they were out for themselves and out for their own gain. That's why it was a mistake. But more than that, it was a mistake because it wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's plan for how he would lead his people. See, at this time in Israel's history, God said, I don't want a permanent leader. I don't want a permanent leader of my people. I will raise up a judge or a prophet or whoever it is you need. I'll raise them up when you need them. You don't have the right to appoint your successor. That's my job. So why did Samuel do it, do you think? Just have a think for a while. Why did Samuel do it? Given Samuel is such a good guy, you know, it's very rare in the Bible you find a guy who is as overwhelmingly positive as Samuel is. Uh, why did he do it? I think he had good motives. I think he was doing it for good motives. He couldn't travel to the places. He needed help. Uh, in the end, it wasn't the idea that was wrong. It was his choice of who to get to help him that was wrong. He did it on the basis of blood rather than them being the appropriate people to do the job. But anyway, it wasn't just Samuel who was worried. The elders of the people of Israel at this time, uh, they could see their problem as well. They could see that Samuel's plan wasn't going to work. And so what they did is they came to Samuel and said, Samuel, we see the problem and we've got a solution. And this moment in Israel's history changes the course of history forever. This is actually one of the, the big moments of the Bible, and it's in verses 4 to 18. So look at verse 4 with me. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. If you've just come in on the story and you haven't been reading along in 1 Samuel, you might think that that sounds like a pretty good idea. You know, we're, we're sick of all this uncertainty. We're, we're sick of the, this lack of, of security. Uh, so give us a king to rule over us like all the other nations have. They seem to be more secure than us. Give us a king like the Philistines have and like the Amorites have, like all those other people have, and he can bring order to our country. But actually, this is the worst idea 
they've ever had. It's an absolutely horrible idea. Why is it such a bad idea, do you think? If you think about it, what is the difference between a judge like Samuel and a king? Is there any difference? What's the one difference? Well, there's that. Yes, taxes. What's the big difference? The big difference is a king's sons take over when he dies. Are they that stupid? They're coming to Samuel and saying, your sons have taken over and they're hopeless, so give us a king. So his sons can take over. They're incredibly dense. Really, is there any worse way to choose a leader than on the basis of who his daddy is? Is there any worse way to choose a leader in the history of mankind? I mean, the French and the Americans worked this out in the 1700s. By the way, don't guess whether I'm a monarchist or a a Republican at this point, but the French and the Americans worked this out in the 1700s, didn't they? They fought wars to get rid of kings and queens because they said, what right does someone have to rule over us just on the basis of who their dad is? I think the British and us have actually worked it out much better because we get to keep the royal weddings and all that sort of thing. So New Idea and Women's Weekly stay in print and people can make some money. But our king and queen has no power. That's a pretty good system. You know, you get all the royal weddings, you get to say, isn't Kate nice and little George, isn't he cuddly and all that? But, but, but he doesn't have any power. It's great. But you see, I'm being a bit silly about it, but for the Israelites, haven't they just seen how hopeless this system is? Eli's sons, corrupt. Samuel's sons, corrupt and then they say hey give us a king but worse than that their request wasn't just stupid it was also sinful look with me at verse 6 it says there Samuel considered their demand sinful look at it there what was it that made their demand not just dumb but sinful what was it about it do you think it's that last part at the end of verse 5 where they say, appoint us a king the same as all the other nations have. See, why is that so bad, wanting to be just like all the other nations? You see, the whole point of why God chose Israel to be his people was so that they would be different to all the other nations. As you go through the Old Testament, whenever God says, this is why I chose you, he says, so that you will be different to the other nations see I want you to be my treasured possession God said I want you to be different I want you to be my holy nation I want you to be different I want you to be separate I I want you to be a light to the world I want all the other nations of the world to look at you and say what's different about Israel oh it's the fact that they worship Yahweh the one true God I want what they've got that was the whole purpose of Israel existing And can I say it's the whole purpose of us existing as God's people. People are meant to look at us and say, why are they different? We're not meant to be like the people out there. We're not meant to be like the world. We're meant to be so different in the way we live that people say, I want to know the God they worship. I want to know this Lord Jesus Christ who they worship. Well, that's what it was meant to be for Israel. And the main way they were different is that God, Yahweh, the Lord, was their king. They didn't have a human king like the other nations. God was their ruler. He said, I will lead you, and you just listen to my word and do what I call on you to do. So you can see what they wanted. You can see what their motives were. They wanted stability. 
It's really hard trusting in a God you can't see and touch. It's really hard when, when you've got to look back and remember what God has done, but you can't see him. He's not sitting there on the throne in front of you. So they wanted a man they could see. They wanted someone who was impressive. They wanted someone who they could look up to and they could turn to to unite them and give them order and peace. As I say, we live in a totally different world to them, of course. But the heart of their request is the same as the choice we make, that every human being makes. It is really hard trusting that God is in control and his ways are best, isn't it? If you find that easy, come and talk to me about it. I'd love to know your secret. It is really, really hard trusting in a God we cannot see and trusting his ways are best and he has my best interests at heart. See, as Christians, we are called to find our security in Christ and in the hope of heaven. That's the Christian calling. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. He says, look to your heavenly home, not to your earthly home. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have heavenly security. But this life and the things of this world don't get too attached to them. That's the call Jesus makes. But for us, heaven can seem so distant, can't it? Heaven can seem a long way away. It can seem like, well, when is Jesus going to return? When is he going to see his kingdom come to fruition? When is that going to happen? Because it seems that life has just been going on and on and on as normal. So our temptation is to seek after security in this world. That's the temptation for all of us, to store up our treasures here. And so we start to say, what I, what I need is I just need to be secure in this life. I, I need to own that house. I need to have more money in my bank account. I need these shares. I need this term deposit because that's where I can find security. That's where I can find my, my hope for the future. And what happens is prudent saving to ensure we're not a burden on other people very quickly becomes greed and we become attached to the things of this world and finding our security here. The, the point I'm making is don't be too quick to judge the elders of Israel. It's the very same sinful heart that is at work in us that was at work in them, seeking after security in the tangible, visible things of this world rather than trusting in God to provide for us. But back to our story. Samuel is horribly offended by their request because they're basically saying, Samuel, your time's come. We want someone else now. But God says to him, no, 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 Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Don't worry about it. They're rejecting me. Look with me from verse 7. It says, But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshipping other gods. See, God says, Look, at heart, Samuel, they're not rejecting you as their judge. They're actually rejecting me as their king. They want someone instead of me. But he also says something really interesting. Just look there at those verses again from verse 7. See, if I was God, and you should be very thankful I'm not, uh, I would say, Samuel, they are rejecting me, so you just wait till I get those Philistines in on them again. That's what I'd do if I was God. 
I'd say, you just wait. Now, it's not just going to be the Philistines. I might raise up the Babylonians as well and the Egyptians and they are all going to come down and show these people who's boss. But thankfully, God is not like that. God says, listen to the people and give them what they want, even though it's a bad idea. See that there? He says, warn them about the consequences, yes, but give them what they asked for, is what he tells Samuel to do. So look from verse 9. He says, listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. So that's what Samuel does. Just flick with me, scan there down from verse 10. He says, look what the king will do. He'll get your sons and you won't see them anymore because they'll be in his armies fighting his wars. He'll make them farm his fields and you won't get the wealth. He'll be making himself wealthy. He'll take your daughters and he'll make them work for him as well. He'll take your best land off you, your best fields, and he'll give it to his corrupt cronies. That's what a king will do. And in the end, he'll then just tax you mercilessly. What's 5%? Give me 10%. Give me 15%. Give me 20%. It'll just go up and up and up. And in the end, what will happen is you will go from being free men, as you are now, to being slaves of the king. And God says to them, you will hate it. You'll hate it. Look at verse 18. He says, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. You see what God is saying through his prophet Samuel, what he's doing? He's warning them of the consequences. You've made this dumb decision. Here are the consequences of it. But then he's letting them make the decision and bear the responsibility for it. What you see here, and this is so important, we actually get an insight here into how God works with all of us, just like he worked with the Israelites. You see, the essence of sin is to say, I don't want to live under God's rule. The essence of sin is to say, I want to live my way. I want to do what I want. I want to be the king. I want to be the boss, not God. I want to decide what's right and wrong. I want to be free. And what God does is, with us all, is he warns us in his word. He warns us of the consequences of living our life our way. See, God's way is best. It's best for us. It's best for our society. When God warns us uh, against all sorts of sins, he's not doing it because he's a killjoy. He's doing it because it's what's best for us. It's best for us to live God's way. All our sins have awful consequences for us and for our society. Just look at the, world, the job we've done in our world and what a great place it is because of our human freedom. So God warns us, but then he lets us go and do what we want and lets us bear the consequences. You see this in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1. Part of God's judgment on humanity for us rejecting him as king, is he gives us what we want. Now, if I said to my kids, the punishment for you is I'm going to give you what you want, they'd think all our Christmases have come at once, don't they? You know, wow, I'll be naughty and dad gives me what we want. This sounds perfect. It's actually horrible. And you see, most of humanity think this way. They think, oh, look, I'm free to do what I want, whenever I want. Isn't that, that's, that's the highest I could aim for, to be totally free. And what is, the respo- what is the result of that? 
an awful, broken world and society and awful, broken relationships. That is the result of freedom. And it's actually God's judgment on us. You see, when we think of God's judgment, if I said to you, I'm going to talk about God's judgment today, you might think I mightn't come. But no, you think of hell, don't you? You think of the judgment day when God, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And that is true. And there will be a day when that happens. And it should make us think long and hard about our response to Jesus now. But another part of God's judgment is playing out right here and now. When we refuse to live under his rule, he hands us over to our godless ways and to the consequences of them. That is why our world is in the mess it is in. Don't blame God for the mess of our world. Blame humanity because we are the ones who have asked for it. But back to Israel. Samuel warned them. But did they listen? Of course not. Look at verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. If you'll excuse sort of the expression, this is their final get lost to God. Because if you look back over their history, the only times they've ever won a battle, Israel were hopeless. You've got to understand this. They weren't a massive nation. The only times they ever won a battle was when? When God went out before them. When God fought their battles for them. And now they're saying, do you know what? We'd rather have a person. We'd rather have a human king to fight our battles for us than to have God himself. And so in next week's passage, Samuel gives them the king they want so that they can be just like all the other nations. But now as we close, uh, what lesson do we draw from this chapter? I mean, it's interesting history and it's interesting to see the Israelite foolishness and sinfulness. But what lessons do we draw from this part of God's word? Uh, I think the lesson in this chapter is how it then played out in history. You know, for the next thousand years, this was all happening in about a thousand B.C., for the next thousand years, they actually got just the sort of kings Samuel warned they would get. Every one of them. Kings who abused them, kings who rorted them, kings who stole from them, kings who led them down all sorts of horrible paths. You know how they say you get the leaders you deserve? Israel got the leaders they deserved. Even the best of their kings, who were the best of the Israelite kings? People like David, you know, and Solomon, even the best and wisest were deeply flawed men. And they did provide security for a time and blessing for a time, but they could never keep it. And so one lesson I think you draw from this chapter is if you want to find your security in this world, it will always fail. If you want to find your security in politicians or in real estate, or in the amount of zeros on the end of your bank account, it will all fade away. As Jesus says, it will perish, it will rust, it will fade. And even if it doesn't in this life, when you die, you cannot take it with you. It doesn't give you what it promises. But you see, then a thousand years after this, after God had let them suffer, if you will, for a thousand years, the consequences of their own sinfulness... God showed that there is a king worth having. There is a king worth following. 
There is a king who can give every human being security if they want it. Not for this life, but for all of eternity. And we read about him before. You see, 1,000 years later, God, in a wonderful act of mercy, sent the king that no one wanted. Not the king they asked for, the king that no one wanted, the king they rejected, but the king that everyone needs. Sarah read for us before uh, that amazing moment in John's Gospel where the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, is standing there and he says to Jesus, tell me, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And what did Jesus say? In Jesus' sort of way, he didn't answer the question. That's the way Jesus often operated. But if you read it, you see he's saying, yes, but. Just look at John 18, 36. It's on the bottom of your outline. This is Jesus speaking. He said, my kingdom... I am a king but my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews as it is my kingdom does not have its origin here see what Jesus is saying there he's saying I am the king God has sent but I am not a king like any other king you've ever known I am not a king like all the other nations have I'm not a king like the one the Israelites wanted See, Samuel said to the Israelites, your king will abuse you and he'll take advantage of you and he will do horrible things to you and he'll make you serve him. What did Jesus say when he came? He said, I have come to serve, not to be served. You see how Jesus is different to every other leader the world has ever known. Samuel warned the Israelites, your king will send your young men off to die in his wars. Jesus said, well, I've come to die for you. So you don't have to die. I haven't come to judge you. I have come to take the judgment that you deserve upon myself. I haven't come to condemn you. I have come to take the punishment of God, the condemnation of God on myself so that you can have eternal life. You see, Jesus is the one king who is worth following. And he makes his offer to everyone. See, Jesus says, look with me from Matthew 11 on your outline. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, what Jesus does is he says, look, you'll never find security and certainty in this world. You won't. It's not possible. Your leaders will let you down. Your possessions will rust. They will perish. They will fade. And even if they don't, you can't take them with you when you die. But I can give you real hope and I can give you real security, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. That is the promise that Jesus makes. I can give you that incredible peace and that incredible comfort that comes from knowing that you have a place in God's kingdom forever. See, the question this passage asks us is, will we be like the Israelites? who try to find security and hope in this world? Or will we trust in God for everything? And we do that by believing in and following the one true King, and that is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we might learn this lesson from our forebears 3,000 years ago. Not to trust in the things of this world, but instead to trust in you, 
as our provider, our saviour and our king. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is unlike every other leader and every other king who has ever lived. He didn't come for us to serve him. He came to serve us. And he didn't ask us to die for him. Instead, he was willing to die for us so that we might have the hope of eternity. And we pray that every person here tonight might follow Jesus as their king. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.